Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts, what's pleasing to you. God, help us to listen to your word, to draw near to you, to, to hear you speak with appropriate reverence and godly fear and joy in our hearts. God, I would pray that you would show us wonderful things in your word and remind us of needed things in your word. And I pray that you would be glorified by the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 5, and we continue moving verse by verse through this wonderful book, beginning today in verse 8. And our scripture passage today is about riches and possessions, wealth and goods, and whether or not a person has joy in what God gives him. And we need very much to hear God speak to us about this because we live in the richest country in the world. Uh, Virtually all of us have far more wealth and certainly far more possessions than most people in the world and throughout history. Uh, There's so much material prosperity and indulgence around us. And so every day in our culture, we feel the pull of materialism and consumerism and greed. And that's hard on us because there's still sin in our hearts that wants to be swept away by those things. It's true for every one of us. We need Ecclesiastes 5 and 6 to renew our minds, to rescue us from conformity to the world in these matters. And in the Bible today, we will see how people live at times loving what won't satisfy and clinging to what they can't keep, while others are able to live absorbed in a supernatural joy. And the main topic of the passage especially begins down in verse 10 when it introduces those who love money, but, but before that, verses 8 and 9, it speaks briefly about the poor and rulers. So look at those verses with me, Ecclesiastes 5.8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and yet there are higher ones over them. But this is gained for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Now, these verses help transition us uh, because the previous chapter, chapter 4, talked about oppression and kings. So here in verse 8, it says, when we see the poor oppressed, when we see justice violated in the world, people's rights denied or taken away. The word says, don't be astonished by that. Don't be surprised by what you're seeing. Mourn over it, yes. Marvel at it, no. Expect it. Believe it. Because the hearts of men are wicked. And so apart from God's restraining grace or sanctifying grace, sin and selfishness reigns. And that's the ultimate reason why we should not be amazed to see these awful things. But that isn't actually the reason verse 8 gave, is it? What did the verse say? The end of the verse. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. So, So don't marvel when you see oppression and injustice, because the people in power have people in power over them who have people in power over them. Okay, how does that logic work? Well, I I think it has several applications, but in light of the fact that the passage is about to talk about the love of money, I think the main idea here is that the poor are oppressed and, and robbed of justice because with all those layers of leaders above them, it's just likely that some will be looking to line their pockets. And so, so each level of authority can, can take advantage of, of the level below them. And so, so the cost of justice 
keeps being pushed down and snowballing and eventually falling on the people who, who just don't have anyone else to push it down on further. The officials over you have officials over them, and, and everybody wants a cut, so don't marvel. God's told us what's in the heart of man. But also don't despair, because God has told us he will judge in the end and make all things right. Now, verse 9 is not easy to understand, and my Bible actually has a footnote that says, the meaning of the Hebrew verse is uncertain. Well, what seems most likely in verse 9 is that this is a quick point that counterbalances the last one. Lest anyone read verse 8 and think, well, well, then we'd be better off just not having officials and authorities and government if that's the way it's going to be. But Solomon says, no, it is advantageous for the land to have a king, still to have a, to have a government who can bring some order to a society and, for example, verse 9, to make sure fields keep being cultivated. That that's, that's for the benefit of everyone to some degree. So, Human governments are corrupt, yes, expect that, but also they are still gifts of God in some sense, and in this fallen world, we would be even worse off without them, with anarchy. Well, again, the meaning of verse 9 isn't super clear, but, but what is very clear is the point made in verse 10, and that introduces the first big point of the larger passage. Uh, the vanity of how many live, loving what won't satisfy. Loving what won't satisfy. Look at verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor, who, nor he who loves wealth with his income or increase. This also is vanity. All right, well, don't be surprised when you see this either. Uh, people who love money will be unsatisfied. When they get it, no matter how much. And how sad it is to give your heart in love to something that can never satisfy you. Note carefully, the warning in this verse is not about having money and wealth. It's about loving money and wealth. And you can love it whether or not you have much of it. The poor person who longs for it the rich person who longs for more of it, they both have the same twisted love living in their heart, and neither will be satisfied by it. You know, in 1 Timothy 6, uh, Paul talks about the, the moral danger and the spiritual and eternal ruin that the love of money leads to. But, but this verse in Ecclesiastes, it's not warning per se about how the love of money will lead you to destruction and more evil, this is warning you that the love of money will leave you sad and empty, unsatisfied. And this verse will prove true every time. Uh, you can take this to the bank. He will not be satisfied, not with any abundance or increase. Now, this verse also teaches an important, just broader principle, that your satisfaction in life is tied to what you love. See? When you feel deeply unsatisfied, you need to ask, what am I loving? If your heart goes out in love to that which is most worthy of love, you'll be satisfied. The next verse, uh, verse says, gives several reasons why the love of wealth and abundance won't satisfy. And he, here the Spirit starts to stack up reasons to uh, disabuse us of the idea that oh, our life would be better if we just had a little more money or, or a little more of the stuff that money can buy. And that's not necessarily the case. Look at verse 11. When goods increase... They increase who eat them or consume them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? So, you see what that's saying? When you get more goods, do you know what else you get? More people around you who will consume all of those goods instead of you. Uh, the more you have, the more people you'll have to have to help take care of all you have. And, and also, probably the more 
distant relatives and uh, pretend friends and freeloaders that, that you'll attract. But, but regardless of whether or not that happens, I think what this verse is saying is, is when you get more and more stuff, your personal capacity to enjoy stuff doesn't increase. You're still just one person. So, so what advantage is all of that abundance to you? You won't get to enjoy it all personally. You, you'll just get to watch more of what you've gained uh, go into the mouths and pockets of, of other people. And the next verse adds, having an abundance uh, may make it hard for you to sleep. Verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So those who don't have very much, who, who have to work very hard to maybe eat just a little, well, generally speaking, they're able to enjoy sweet sleep. Why? They're so tired from the labor they had to do, and they don't have as much stuff that they might be tempted to worry about losing. Sometimes also, to, to take the verse in its most literal sense, having a lot means you get to eat a lot, and eating a lot makes your stomach hurt so you can't sleep. Uh, the life of abundance and riches and plenty it's not always all it's cracked up to be, including when it's time to go to sleep. People who have plenty of food, plenty of stuff, plenty of money, they, they often also have plenty of problems to go with it all and plenty to worry about. But again, what, what, what's the real issue here? It's what you love. If you love to have lots, then, then you won't really be able to rest. You won't really be able to enjoy what you have, whether a lot or little. I mean, what, what if you knew for certain that what you loved was going to let you down? Wouldn't you want to change ahead of that cliff of dissatisfaction that you're driving toward? Listen to God's word here. Don't love what will not satisfy Love what will. And, and hear God's call again in Scripture. Isaiah 55. He says, Why do you spend your labor for that which will not satisfy? Incline your ear to me. Come to me that your soul may live. And listen, this is one very significant way that God has purposed to make His glory known in the world. Is that, is that when He is our highest love, we're satisfied. Deeply, just as the lack of satisfaction that comes from the love of money shows the, the true uh, emptiness and, and wrongness of materialism and greed, so also the satisfaction that does come when we love God, that proves His great worth and sets it on display. And, and so it shows that how good and right it is to love and worship Him. And the uh, well-known pastor, John Piper, is right about this, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. So find, for the glory of God, find the love that satisfies you. Love the Lord. And, and there's a good question uh, that follows that. Is, okay, how does this love of God get planted in someone's heart and start to grow, this, this satisfying love? Well, the answer is in Christ and through Christ and by looking in faith to Christ and receiving His love-transforming grace. Looking and seeing and remembering that Christ, the Son of God, was betrayed and killed because men love money. Judas, the disciple who was helping himself to the money bag, eventually also sought out more silver to betray Jesus. Sinful men handed Christ over to die because they loved money. But Christ let himself be handed over to die because he loved us. Sinful men who didn't love him. And he resolved to die in love for his people's sins 
as their substitute, he bore the eternal punishment that we deserve for our wrong loves and for the lack of proper loves in our hearts. And then he rose from the dead. And if you look to what Christ did as your substitute and you depend on what he did to save sinners, Scripture promises that your sins will be forgiven. Even the records of your sinful loves will be ripped up before God. And then as you start to trust in how Christ loved you and he gave himself for you, the Spirit will start to, to work through that looking to His love and faith to make you love Him for it. And that's how you can come to love what will satisfy in Christ. Trust in Him. Trust in His dying love. Look again, Christian, at the dying love of Jesus. That's how the love that satisfies grows in your heart. Now verse 13 starts the next, point of, next main point of the passage. Verse 13, adding to the sorrows of, of loving what won't satisfy is clinging to what you can't keep. Clinging to what you can't keep. Verse 13, there is a grievous evil or, or a sickening evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept or watched or guarded by their owner to his own hurt. He kept close watch on his riches, and it was harmful to him the way he hoarded them. You can guard your goods and your gold in a way that's not good for you. So, so this was an important realization for me in my own heart about 10 years ago, that the love of money doesn't only manifest itself in greed for more, but it can also manifest itself in how you try and keep what you have, even if it's only a little. Uh, th this man who's guarding what he owns, the verse doesn't say he has a lot of riches. It's just saying he's clinging to keep what he does have to his own hurt. And one big reason this passage gives for why this heart posture of guarding riches is so harmful is because you can't actually guard them. You can't. You can't keep them one way or another. It's going to be gone. Verse 14 says, And those riches the man was keeping were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. I think that the man is not faulted for his venture here. It, it, it's called bad because it didn't work out, not necessarily because he did something dumb. Or, or really risky. But, but whatever happened, he ended up losing what, what he cared so much to keep. What will it do to your heart if you love what you might lose? Proverbs 23, 4 and 5 says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. Picture this. When your eyes light on the wealth, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Is that a great proverb? Uh, here under the sun, sometimes the riches and the possessions you're trying to keep fly away. And sometimes that happens at the times that it seems like you need it most. This man's bad venture uh, coincided with his fathering a son. And he had nothing in his hand left with which he could support his child. So imagine the distress of this man to find out the stockpile he's hoping in and guarding closely that is gone. See, it is, it is to your harm to hope in something that is so flighty. 1 Timothy 6.17, it says, Don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Riches and goods are not worthy of your ultimate hope because they're not certain. They can be lost in a bad venture, in an economy of inflation, in a million other ways. Hope in God who is certain, who richly provides, and he cannot lose. Now, if the man thought that this loss of the bad venture was really bad, 
he had another thing coming. An even greater loss was coming. It was a total loss. Look at verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go out again. He shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. So, so if that bad venture didn't empty his hands all the way, well, death is going to do that anyway. One way or another, he's going to end up empty-handed. He, he's going to end up just like the son he fathered when that son entered the world. And so will you. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of seeing a baby come into the world. It's a miracle to, to see that first breath and to hear that first cry. But, but Solomon want, wants you to picture that scene, but think about something else. The new baby comes into the world with nothing. He's not wearing a diaper. He's not holding a rattle. He's got no food, no money. A newborn infant is totally naked and totally empty-handed. Can you picture that? That's a picture of your future. Death will bring you all the way back to the complete empty-handedness of your birth. And that even after and despite a lifetime of toil to gain things. You can't keep it. Learn, say that to yourself. As you look at the things that you have, say, I cannot keep this. Don't cling to it in your heart. Don't make the point of your life something that will be totally pointless the second that you die. That's chasing the wind, isn't it? And, and Solomon says that in verse 16. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so he shall go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Here on earth, we have no lasting city. So we seek the city that is to come. Keep, keep your life free from the love of money and love what will last. Jesus is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. That's a love that will last Verse 17 adds one final brushstroke to this very uh, sad portrait of a person who clung to what he could not keep. Look at verse 17. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and anger. That's not a pretty picture. Uh, and, and this is even before the day of his ultimate loss. Even before he ended up totally empty-handed the day of his death, even while he still had some of his riches to guard and keep, he didn't enjoy it. He's miserable. He's what? Vexed, sick, angry. And, that, and that's part of the problem with clinging to stuff you can't keep. It's not just a matter of you're, you're setting yourself up to be sad one day when you lose it. No, this verse says all his days he is in a pitiable place. Angry, sick, irritable, sad, he passes his days, eating in darkness. Again, very, a very vivid picture. You can see that in your mind, can't you? And, and you don't want to go there, uh, do you? Eating in darkness. You know, maybe that connotes aloneness. He's so preoccupied with his stuff and his wealth that, that slowly uh, all his relationships fade away. Certainly, this connotes sorrow, but, but this phrase, he eats in darkness, it might be even more suggestive and, and bleak that darkness in Scripture many times connotes alienation from God and being cut off from, from the presence of his blessing. Now, verse 18 turns a page and shows another way. So Solomon's been talking about what he's seen to be vanity and a sickening evil, but now he begins to talk about what he sees as good and beautiful and fitting instead. Look at verse 18. It begins, Behold, I have seen what I have seen to be good and fitting. So that, that's where he's going. This is the next main point of the passage. Instead of loving what won't satisfy and clinging to what you can't keep, it is possible to live preoccupied by a supernatural joy. Preoccupied 
by a supernatural joy. Even in the midst of a fallen world that's filled with suffering and loss and wrong and death and bad ventures. I say preoccupied because of what we find in verse 20. Look down there. (laughs) For he, this man, will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. I say this is a supernatural joy because it comes from God. Verse 20 said God keeps him occupied with this joy in his heart. The end of verse 19 says this joy is the gift of God. It's not something natural in man. This is supernaturally given. It's God's gift. And this divine gift of joy is what makes it possible for a person to live the better way that this book has been commending to us over and over again, like in chapter 2, like in chapter 3, and like again here in chapter 5, verse 18. This should sound familiar. Verse 18, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. The few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Cue the course of Ecclesiastes. Find joy in the everyday gifts of God. Daily food, daily drink, daily work. This is your lot from God. This is His gift to you. Enjoy the toil and whatever God gives each day. Don't cling to it and try to keep it forever. You can't keep it. Just enjoy it today as your lot and and gift from God. Don't love these gifts as if they are the source of joy themselves. They aren't. They won't satisfy the person who looks to them like that. No, just enjoy them for what they are. Uh, Temporary, good gifts from an all-satisfying God. Find enjoyment in all your toil the few days of this life. Well, okay, how can a person actually do that? Because our toil is uh, toilsome. There are many things about many of our days that can prevent us from having joy in them. Okay, here's the really important insight that this passage adds to what's come before in the book. Right, verse 18 essentially repeats prior instruction, but verse 19 pushes the argument deeper than what we've seen before. Look at verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions... And power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. You see that? What did it say is the gift of God? The power to enjoy his gifts is also his gift. God must empower a person to enjoy the provisions God has given him. God must empower a person to accept his Lot with contented joy. God must empower a person to rejoice in his toil. Each day as God gives you your daily bread and your daily work and and whatever wealth or possessions you may have, you can only do what Ecclesiastes says you should do with all of that and find enjoyment in them only if God gives you another gift. The gift that is the power to enjoy all of those gifts. See? Enjoyment of God's gifts is also God's gifts. Uh, Philip Ryken wrote a book chapter on this passage of Scripture, and he very cleverly and insightfully titled it, Satisfaction Sold Separately. Because it's possible for a person to receive these gifts, daily bread, daily work, wealth, possessions, all from God, but not also receive from God the power to find joy in them. And what the passage says next in in chapter 12, it says, I'm sorry, chapter 6, it says there are people, a lot of people that this happens, God gives them wealth and possessions, but God does not give them power to enjoy it. So if you find 
that you are able to do what the book of Ecclesiastes has been telling us we should do to live wisely, to find enjoyment in God's everyday gifts, then you need to acknowledge God and you need to thank God for that. That joy and contentment is a supernatural thing. It is a gift from above, even when sinners who do not know God enjoy the things that he's giving them, that is his gift of common grace. Now, since this is God's gift, God would have us to learn to look to him for it. Learn to ask God for this. Don't hear God's command. Find joy in the everyday gifts and and do that in a self-trusting way. Ask God. Seek God. It's a gift of God. Pray for it. Pray this for one another. Say, pray, God, your word says this is a good and beautiful thing. So, God, I'm asking for it. God, God, your word says this is a gift you give. So, I'm asking for it. I pray you would give supernatural power to rejoice in today's toil. And, and that you would give supernatural power to accept today's lot. And give a supernatural power to enjoy everything you let me have for at least today. Satisfaction is given separately, but it is given because God is kind. Now look, look again at verse 20. It further explains what, really what a gift this gift of joy is. It says, For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. He, he does not much remember the days of his life. This means he doesn't sit around thinking about how hard his life has been and still is. Uh, the, the suffering and frustrations and vanities that inevitably come in some measure to everyone here under the sun. That's not what dominates the forefront of, of this person's mind most of the time. Generally, he stays preoccupied with something else. God keeps him occupied with joy. Joy in the good that God is giving him in the present. And, and, and this joy that, that he sees in the present gifts, it helps him not so much to consider the, the fleeting and frustrating nature of this life, the hardships and the disappointments that have come. I mean, don't you love this phrase, occupied with joy? God keeps his heart busy rejoicing so he he doesn't have as much time to reflect on other things. I mean, what a gift. What a wonderful way to live, to to have a heart that is not vacant. It's occupied. Your heart's not open and available for just reflective brooding or despairing or discontent craving to come on in and take over. Now, this is is important to realize, too. This gladness God gives to keep your heart preoccupied so you don't remember much, don't, don't get the wrong idea. This is not like a groundless joy. This is not an escape from reality. This is not detached joy from what is true. It's a joy that's well-founded. It's enjoyment of real and present good that God really is giving. Work and food and friends and family and and to whatever degree, wealth and possessions. God's gift of joy, it's not a diluted joy. It is a distracting joy in a merciful way. But it's it's not a diluted joy. It's not joy despite what's true around you. God does not deceive, even by the joy he gives. This is God opening a person's eyes to see that they really do have real reasons for gladness of heart in him because of what he's giving, no matter, no matter what he might not be giving to you, which is also good in the present. I think this is the kind of joy that, for example, King David knew when he wrote in Psalm 4, 7, You, Lord, have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abounds. It's not a joy that's rooted ultimately in 
the earthly things themselves or in the increase of them or the abundance of them, even though those things rightly are good in and of themselves as gifts from God. Because the joy is in the God who's giving them. And ultimately, the best joy God gives is the joy that comes just from directly knowing Him. God's best gift to us, God's best present gift to us is Himself, His Son, His Spirit. And His next best gift to us in the present is the gift of being able to enjoy that gift. The gift of being able to enjoy God and enjoy knowing Him and enjoy having Him. That's the gift of God you should seek above all others. Well, first, the gift of eternal life, which is knowing Him. And you receive that gift as a free gift through faith in Jesus on the basis of what He did, dying for us to wipe away our stains so that we can know and enjoy a holy God. But then if you have this eternal life, if you do know God in Christ, then the greatest gift you should seek above all the rest is the gift of being satisfied in God, the gift of enjoying God. Seek it like silver. Search for it as for hidden treasures. Call out for it in prayer. God loves to give it. It is His glory to do so. And don't settle for anything less. Now that, now that you have seen with your own eyes in the words of Scripture that you can have your heart kept occupied with supernatural joy, why would you want to live any other way? Seek this gift. Keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking. It's a good gift. And God is a good Father who doesn't give us snakes when we ask for bread. Chapter 6 gives a warning, though. It's a warning that if you don't have this joy, it doesn't matter what else you may have. Your life will be, uh, to use Solomon's words, a grievous evil. That's the last point of the passage today, is the tragedy of not having this joy. The tragedy of not having this joy. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. There's an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. Uh, meaning, it, it's very common. This sad evil is prevalent amongst fallen men and women in a fallen world. Now, um, this, this heavy evil is described in verse 2. Look at verse 2. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. Okay, notice how this verse uh, ups, ups the ante to, to make this point that it doesn't matter how much you have from God, if you don't have also from Him supernatural empowerment and opportunity to enjoy what He's given, then it's a sickening tragedy. And here's how the verse raises the stakes. We've been talking about God giving wealth and possessions and power to enjoy. That was up in verse 15. But here in verse 2, a man is given wealth and possessions and honor. The, the idol of many people, even above money. And this verse says, this man has so much, there is nothing his soul desires that he doesn't have. But he doesn't enjoy it. Satisfaction with life's good things is not guaranteed even if God lets you have them. Even the satisfaction must come from God. Every good gift and every power to enjoy every good gift, it comes from Him. All things are from Him and through Him and to Him. Now verse 3 pushes the point even further and makes it in an even more extreme way. We get another picture. Uh, this is more extreme in how much good a man might have and it's more extreme it is in telling us how sad it is. 
if he can't enjoy it. Look at this verse now, verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he has no burial, I, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Now, to get the fuller picture of this parable in your mind, this comparison, look down at verse 6. See how long a life Solomon is thinking of for this person. Verse 6. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, which makes 2,000 years, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? which is the grave. Okay, in the worldview of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, two of the greatest earthly blessings a person might have are lots of children and lots of years of life. And so when King Solomon wants to dig in his bag of illustrations and say, imagine with me a man who's unfathomably blessed in terms of earthly goods. He says, okay, picture a person who has just an absurd abundance of children and years of life. Imagine a guy who has 100 children and 2,000 years of life. A man who outlived Methuselah twice. And in this person, right, he seems like he might be the most blessed person ever to live with a crazy large family and a crazy long life. And then hear the shocking judgment of Scripture that the person who never had a single child and who never lived a single day outside the womb is better off than he is if the man's soul is not satisfied with those good things that God gave him. And verse 1 told us that happens to many. Now, it's hard. Uh, it's hard for me to, to talk about. It's hard to even think about the tragedy that is stillbirth. That is one of the most painful and deep of all earthly sorrows. It, it is... It's hard to imagine a more tragic, lost opportunity in life. But this verse says, here is a more tragic, lost opportunity in life. Having so much, but not being able to enjoy any of it. Now, sinners don't deserve any enjoyment of any good thing from God. And it is their own sin against him that prevents their enjoyment of it. And so it must be his, his gracious gift to enable this joy. Now, when, when verse 3 added this note, that his, his long life ends with no burial, uh, that might be a picture of, of dying alone without anyone coming around him afterwards. And how sad, he had a hundred children. But though he had many, he didn't enjoy his children or any other good thing God gave. And, and so they don't care all that much when he passes. Uh, mainly, though, I think the idea here is, is this having no burial is a typical Old Testament way to picture dying apart from God's blessings. Uh, dying under God's curse. The Old Testament prophets threaten this kind of thing, that, that you'll die and not be buried for, because of your sin against God, and so the birds and the beasts will come and, and have their fill, eating your unburied body. It's a picture of dying under God's curse, and, and this kind of curse is a fitting end to the person who lives under the curse of no enjoyment, no satisfaction in life's good things. And verses 4 through 6 explain why the stillborn is better off than this man who looks most blessed. 
And it starts by reflecting on the great tragedy of, of stillbirth, to emphasize how tragic it is to not have, uh, in part because of active sin, this gift from God of joy in life. See in verse 4. For it, the stillborn child, comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. So, so the child's born in the world, but, but not to live in it. it. His life was the most vapor-like of vapors. This is what it means. It, it comes in vanity. He goes in darkness. The child never sees the light of day. His name is covered in darkness. His, his name is not widely known, and, and his name is not passed on to another generation. But verse 5 turns a, turns a corner a little bit to explain how that child has an advantage over the man who has so much. Look at verse 5. Moreover, uh, the child has not seen the son or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. And, and then verse 6 tells us why the long life of, of the 2,000-year-old man, that's not actually a big advantage for him over the stillborn child. In the end, verse 6, even though the man should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? Both end up dead, so, so that's a tie in the end in terms of their mortality and eternity, but only one finds rest, the man who enjoys no good thing, even though he has lots of them, he never finds it. And, and, we could add, the stillborn child goes to enjoy the good things of eternity with God, which is far better than the greatest of good things on earth, even with the power to enjoy them. This, this is such a heart-wrenching comparison here, and it's supposed to make you feel deeply how much you need this gift from God, the, the gift of God to find enjoyment in life's good things, the gift to accept your lot, the gift to rejoice in your toil. The tragedy of living without that gift is stunning. Admit your desperate need for this gift. Ask for it in faith. And I mean in faith, because if God did not withhold His own Son but delivered him up freely for us all. How will God not graciously with his son freely give us all things, including this gift? Pray expectantly in the name of Jesus, Father in heaven, occupy my heart with joy and rescue me from loving what won't satisfy. Rescue me from clinging to what I can't keep. And you know what you can't keep includes riches and possessions and this life. If you live 2,000 years, you're still going to lose this life. You can't keep your riches and you can't keep this life. And so don't cling to that either. Loving and clinging to money can prevent you from receiving God's kingdom. But so can loving and clinging to your life. Jesus said whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Lose it for Christ's sake. You can't keep it anyway. Cling in love to Christ, not the hope that you might live longer on earth. Now verses 7 through 9 are, are a little wrap-up conclusion for this passage. <clears throat> Look at these concluding Proverbs. Verse 7, all the toil of man is for his mouth yet his appetite is not satisfied. Or more literally, his soul is not filled. So a man has to keep working because he wants to keep eating and, and because he continues to desire all, all kinds of things. So, so if you set your heart on, on what you don't have or on keeping the things you do, you'll never rest satisfied and enjoy good because all the toil in the world can't get for you or guard for you the ultimate satisfaction of your desires, of your appetites in earthly goods. 
And in this regard, it doesn't matter if you're wise or foolish, rich or poor, you won't be satisfied. This is what verse 8 adds when it says, What advantage has the wise man over the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Oh, see, so you should not think as your takeaway from this passage about wealth and possessions that maybe a poor man who's very well thought of because of how well he conducts himself, maybe, maybe he's the one who can find satisfaction apart from God's gift of it since, since money and stuff can't deliver and he doesn't have that anyway. No, neither riches nor poverty nor honor nor living a well-conducted life that others think well of None of it can fill the heart with joy in and of itself. So what are we to do? Verse 9. Better is the sight of the eyes. That is, what's before you. What you have now. Enjoying what you can see. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. Just your soul uh, roving, desiring what you don't have and can't see in your hands. And this also is vanity and striving after wind. So accept your lot from God that you can see, find enjoyment in it by the gift of God. Don't, don't let your soul wander off all over the place looking for all kinds of other things. That's not your lot right now. Now the final line of verse 9, that's become familiar to us in Ecclesiastes, hasn't it? This also is vanity and striving after wind. Uh, but this is the last time that this book says this. Never again will the book tell us something is striving after wind. This verse wraps up not just the passage we looked at today, but the whole first half of the book. This is, this is halftime of Ecclesiastes right here. And the passage we've looked at, it, it ends the first half of the book in a powerful and important way. It adds to what we've already heard in a very important way. But Solomon has more to say that we need to hear and know if we're going to live wisely and well and joyfully and in a way that matters eternally in these few days that God has given us under the sun. God, give us ears to hear what the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes will tell us and give us a heart to do what we've already heard. God, I pray that you would give all of us in here the great gift of being able to rejoice in our toil and accept our lot and enjoy the good things you give. Help us to do that in a way that would lead us to finding greater satisfaction in you. God, I pray that you would even... Uh, Use the next song we'll sing and the Lord's table to accomplish the same good in our hearts. By your grace, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.